This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, dear listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. What is going on? Oh, man. What's the story? What's the haps? Marie, I got really drunk yesterday <laughs> at, an event, at an event called the Minnesota Beer Dabbler. It sounds the, like you, you more than dabbled. Well, it's the winter beer dabbler. Sir. What's funny is, so I can, like, beer, I, drink, I can drink a lot of beer and then not feel like I'm getting drunk at all. <sighs> and then what happened mm-hmm. was they also had a meat mm-hmm. and cheese sampler at the dabbler. Oh dear! And God. I was like, well, "I'm already dabbling, so I might as well start sampling." Did they have a whole a whole a host of uh, cardiac specialists as well? I, I had thing? a lot of cheese curds, and then I didn't feel good, and so we took an Uber home. <laughs> Anyways, this was, episode was Katie just like seriously, dude. I just wanted to go see Roma. <laughs> oh, Katie was also Katie was so tired. We like we we were drinking for like oh god, it's a great event. Anyways. Today's episode, dear listeners, is on the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Yes. Yes. So this is going to be the first of a, I think, four-part series is where we're thinking this is going to end up here. Yes. And uh, And it's going to be pretty good. Just sort of as context, I don't want to say a fan favorite because that is kind of sick because the man was a sociopath, a psychopath, and killed people. But he's an eminently interesting figure, I think, in American history, in recent American history. And there's a lot of writing and a lot of, I mean, his own writing. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of writing on him. And he's just, I mean, again, I remember when this was all happening and sort of the mythos and the interest around, like, this character that nobody knew who he was, was he alive or dead? All of a sudden something would happen and it was the Unabomber and just the fascination around him was immense. And I still think is immense. I'm fascinated by him and his story. He's kind of a, he's been romanticized a lot too, in the sense of him being kind of a, I I don't know if, I don't know if the right word is sort of a. Antihero. Kind of an antihero and and Mm -hmm. also something of a, not a moral response to modern society, but mm-hmm. I think a response to modern society that a lot of people can at least understand, you know, without the violence, I think it, the idea of living off the land and mm-hmm. going out into the woods someplace and just having a cabin and some books and just kind of, you know, occasionally going into town and living a very simple life. I think kind of that modern hermit, you know, modern day hermit kind of lifestyle. Right? Yeah, it it appeals yeah. to it appeals to a lot of people, and I think it's romanticized. You know, probably because most of us don't think about where you'd poop <laughs> if you lived in the woods, right? Uh, but you know, it's it's an interesting idea. So we're gonna get we're gonna get super deep into this episode. So listeners, strap not about, on not about pooping, not about pooping. <laughs> strap on your uh, strap on your Che Guevara shirts, and let's get into this episode. 
Scientist Podcast. This week's episode, The Unabomber Part 1. So, Theodore John Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber, is the focus of these episodes here at the beginning of this new season. Now, you probably best know him for a spree of bombings that he uh, performed from 1978 to 1995. Yeah. During which he killed three people, injured 23 other people, and ended up having a really, really big media profile because he sent out this manifesto, which was known as the Unabomber Manifesto, but was better known or, or actually known by its title, Industrial Society and Its Future. Mm-hmm. And also, potentially now you know about him or know more of him, or at least have seen this on Netflix, a new documentary kind of, there's documentaries out there, but the Netflix thing is more of a dramatization of his story. Yeah. Uh, but but very interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's not great, yeah. but it's interesting. It's, you know what, really quick side note, it's got the guy in it who is in the remake of Clash of the Titans. Ooh. Yes, Sam, I believe it's Sam Worthington, something like that. And he was excellent in Clash of the Titans. Mm. So I want to start this off with a quote, actually. And this is from this is from one of the major sources for this episode, uh, Prisoner of Rage, which is a New York Times kind of long article series by Robert D. McFadden from 1996. So, quote, people who had known Ted as a boy, as a high school and college student, as a professor at Berkeley and as a recluse in Montana, as well as investigators and witnesses in the Unabom case, have drawn a picture of a man whose life seemed destined to be torn apart. A mathematical genius who rose swiftly to academic heights, even as he became an emotional cripple. It is a funereal portrait of loneliness, obsession, and contradictions. A Harvard degree at 20, but no one to call a friend. Rising success in one of the nation's top mathematics departments, then total retreat from society. A concern for humanity and nature that led finally, officials say, to a one-man war against technology and the cold calculation of the death of strangers, end quote. Mm. To, say that, to say that Ted Kaczynski was a man of contradictions, I think in some ways misunderstands him fundamentally. I don't, I don't think he was, his whole life, we're going to go through this series and kind of talk about a lot of the myth, a lot, you know, the myth-making around this figure. And one of the big myths, I think, was that he was doing this for some some positive purpose <laughs> that he was he was really doing it for the environment or he was, you know, he was doing it because he was concerned about the encroachment of technology on our freedoms. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in some ways, that's true. But even he himself admits in his writings that down at the bottom of it all is just a kind of a fundamental feeling of rage and resentment towards a world that he couldn't understand. And so that's, that's kind of my broad takeaway here on this story. At least I don't know, Marie, if you had a different, different reading of it. Uh, Well, I mean, I think he defies a lot of, a lot of conventional profiling and understanding. And I, in what I was reading, I felt like he ought, he did not have any sort of means to communicate effectively no. with the no. outside world 
or with anyone. And he didn't like it comes I, to me, it really comes down to he didn't like people. He had a real difficult time understanding and empathizing with people in general. And it just but he he desperately wanted his philosophy and his voice to be heard. And so I think that that's that is what predicated a lot of this violence, like the violence was everyone was like, well, it was symbolic, it was meaningful, and I think it was more like swatting at a fly. Like, this this person did not even register, in my opinion, he didn't register the people that he was killing as even necessarily human or even grand or abstract as uh, symbolic. They were just almost a nuisance in some ways. Well, cer- certainly not at the level of human that I think he would have considered to be Valuable. Himself. Yes. Right. Yes. So there's there's a couple of important quotes here, I think, that are going to kind of kind of, I think, guide this episode, at least in the way that mm-hmm. I'm looking at them. Mm-hmm. So here's one of them. Right. This this is from the Unabomber Manifesto. These both of these quotes will be from this. So, quote, the system needs scientists, mathematicians and engineers. It can't function without them. So heavy pressure is put on children to excel in these fields. It isn't natural for an adolescent human being to spend the bulk of his time sitting at a desk absorbed in study. A normal adolescent wants to spend his time in active contact with the real world. Among primitive peoples, the things that children are trained to do tend to be in reasonable harmony with natural human impulses. Among the American Indians, for example, boys were trained in active outdoor pursuits, just the sort of thing that boys like. But in our society, children are pushed into studying technical subjects, which most do grudgingly, end quote. <laughs> as, he got, <laughs> as he got older, he came to resent his mathematical skills, his, you know, his genius, frankly, and his upbringing, especially. Yeah, and that, I mean, that is a clear lens straight back into his upbringing because yeah. that's what happened. Now, and, and so here's another one. So again, quote, the moral code of our society is so demanding that no one can think, feel, and act in a completely moral way. For example, we are not supposed to hate anyone, yet almost everyone hates somebody at some time or other, whether he admits it to himself or not. In order to avoid feelings of guilt, they continually have to deceive themselves about their own motives and find moral explanations for feelings and actions that in reality have a non-moral origin. We use the term over-socialized to describe such people. Over-socialization can lead to low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc., If a particular child is especially susceptible to such feelings, he ends by feeling ashamed of himself, end quote. Hmm. I really think those two quotes are the, are the, the central kind of thesis to his thinking on his childhood. Mm -hmm. He resented being forced to study, to, to learn, to, to, you know, he resented in some ways I don't even know if he necessarily even understood himself that, you know, as we're going to learn more about his childhood, it's going to become clear that in some ways he kind of set himself up in these pursuits, right? Like he, he seemed to enjoy them at least for a time. <laughs> well, it, it may, it may even not have anything to do with that too. I mean, I think that that's, that's one of the bigger questions with somebody of this nature is, was he born to be this person or were, or was it 
a his upbringing, right? Or did something happen in his upbringing that would force him or that would lead him to to this outcome? And I, I, well, I, you know, spoiler alert, I have my ideas on it, but yeah, I mean, I, but keep going. Yes. Well, yes. so let's, let's get into his childhood. Yes. Right. So yes. first off, the Kaczynski family uh, came to America in the late 18th century, early 19th century from Poland. Yes. And so Ted and his brother, David, are second generation Polish immigrants. Yes. Uh, his, his paternal grandparents, Jacob and Helen Kaczynski, uh, first came uh, from Poland and moved to Chicago. They were in Pittsburgh for a little bit, then moved to Chicago, mm-hmm. following a long line of Kaczynskis in the Chicagoland area. Yes. Uh, Kaczynski is a big, a big name. Actually, yeah. In yeah. So in, in 1912, his father, Theodore, is born. And uh, his his brother, his uncles, um, and the father's brothers all became involved in the family sausage factory, Kaczynski yes. Sausages. Now, his mother was also born to Polish immigrants in Ohio and then moved to Chicago. His mother's name was Wanda Dombeck. Yes. And so the two of them met in Chicago, married April 11th, 1939, and they moved to South Walcott, which is right near where Kaczynski Sausages was. Now, as far as we can tell from all the all the research and stuff, his father and, and mother were pretty they they weren't they weren't normal for the time period. But they were, I think, what would be what we would consider today to be very normal, well-adjusted kind of people. They were very liberal. They were extremely re- liberal to the point they of were actually very liberal. Yes. To the point of even, I mean, not even just liberal. They were very intellectual in a way. Now yes. it's interesting because the, the parents both dropped out of high school in order mm-hmm. to work, but they, they received their credit correspondence degrees after a mm-hmm. time. They were both very well read, very well mm-hmm. rounded. They always went to museums and, and science places and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually ended up becoming atheists, which again, we're talking about the 1940s. In right, you know, in an immigrant community, that's super yes. weird. Like me being an atheist in 2020s uh, immigrant community is considered strange, you know, it's, in some ways. So it's a stretch. It's a stretch. Yeah. And the idea of education and um, so his mom was very much into the humanities and yes, was very studied in the humanities and at a very young age, um identified self-worth from education. Yeah. From intellectual pursuits. Absolutely. From intellectual pursuits. And had a teacher actually say like, she's, she's, uh, she's very smart. She's very well read. And from that, she sort of, she sort of identified even more so than with her parents, that this was an important thing. And this was a different, a point of differentiation. It's like, that was a very, uh, like a, a turning point was being recognized by an adult outside of the family in this, in a teacher that would be able to kind of give this, this credibility to her, which mm. is, she was like, this was something that was really important um, in her life going forward. So it's, even if she didn't get it from her parents, that she got it from this one, you know, this one teacher. And um, one of the books too, that we, that we read and looked at for this is uh, is a story by his, it's pretty slim book by his brother um, called Every Last Tie. And it's 
really moving and it sort of talks about his family and his family life. Again, viewed through his brother who again, like, oh my God, the name is David. So it's his, his younger brother, David, and just sort of this, the family dynamic within this, within this group of, of, uh, of, you know, second generation immigrants is really interesting. Yeah. And the, but yeah. Mm-hmm. The brother, the brother and Ted actually end up having extremely divergent views of their childhood. You know, it <laughs> becomes a very, it becomes a very thorny point of contention. We're going to get into it probably in the third episode more, but you know, the memories of his, the memories his mother and brother share about their childhood or, you know, the upbringing of these kids is significantly different than the way Ted himself seemed to understand what occurred to him as a kid. Yes. Now, I- interestingly too, the mother was very intellectual. The father was considered also pretty smart and, and valued mm-hmm. that, but mm-hmm. his father was really the one that instilled in the kids, the love of the outdoors. Mm-hmm. The father took them camping, uh, you know, which would teach them how to, how to hunt and how to live off the land and, you know, really brought to both of them this idea of the importance of the environment and being able to live for yourself kind of in that, in that sort of way that he would embrace. I mean, David would embrace as well for a time, but, but Ted much more so. Now, another important moral kind of, uh, kind of moral thread that goes to the family is this idea of integrity. Mm-hmm. They were, I mean, the parent, you know, the parents would try to show that being honest, being true to your word, being true to your values was very important. And we're going to see how Ted kind of takes that and warps it into again, kind of a, it's just an interesting sort of way. So, all right. So Ted himself is born after the family moves to Carpenter street in the 1940s, the early 1940s. Now Carpenter street is kind of a, it's again, still kind of in Chicago, but it's a little bit more suburban than when, where the family initially was. So uh, Ted is born May 22nd, 1942 and is considered, you know, seemed to be pretty normal until nine months old where he develops a severe allergic reaction. The parents don't know what Mm -hmm. is going on with this allergic reaction. They have no idea. So they bring him to a Mm -hmm. hospital ward. And the hospital, at that time period, I guess, parents weren't allowed to visit their children in the hospital. It was very kind of, I guess, for this specific kind of thing, it was very, uh, very difficult to actually have time to see your child. And so uh, this was very antiseptic, right? Like you couldn't, it's not like you could sort of the NICUs of today or, you know, that you could go and there's, you could stay with your child. It was much more like you're, you hand them over to a nurse or a doctor and they are taken in. Right. And so, you know, yeah. And so supposedly this is a, the mother always considered Mm -hmm. this to be the fundamental turning point in Ted's life. This is the point where huge point of separation anxiety. Right. This, this is the point where he went from normal to uh, to reclusive and in some ways violently resentful. Now she says she says uh, this is a quote from a Washington Post article um, called "A Stranger in the Family Picture" by Kovaleski and Adams. Mm-hmm. So quote, uh, this is from the mother's diary that she kept at the time. So quote, he was a happy baby when she took to the hospital, but when she brought him home, he was limp and unresponsive. Quote, like a bundle of clothes. 
She spent days coaxing, cajoling, rocking, holding until she finally elicited some response. A few years later, the family pediatrician showed her and Ted, then four, an awful photograph the hospital had left in his record. Ted was pinned down so the physicians could photograph his hives. Ted glanced at it and looked away, she recalled. He refused to look at it anymore. And I thought, oh my God, he's having the same feelings that he had when he was held down that way. In the years since then, child development experts have written widely about the effects of separation and trauma in the very young. But Wanda Kaczynski needed only to see the photograph to grasp how helpless her baby felt. This showed up, she now believes, in his extreme reactions to everyday events, as well as his lifelong aversion to hospitals. Mm. When he was about 10, his father caught a shrew in their backyard. He popped a sieve over it and called out to children playing nearby to come see. The youngsters crowded, crowded around. But Ted approached apprehensively. When he saw the trapped shrew, he screamed out, Let it go! Let it go! She remembered. Startled, Ted's father handed him the shrew and told him to let it run free. Mm-hmm. Wanda had seen this kind of reaction before. Even then, I wondered if he was having the same feelings that he did when he stood up in the crib and was crying and reaching out his arms while the nurse was pushing me out the door. Ted was so anxious about medical treatment that once, when he and his father found an injured rabbit, he begged that they not take it to a nearby animal hospital. After a freshman year at Harvard, while he was home for the summer, he contracted mononucleosis and developed a high fever. A pediatrician urged Wanda to take Ted to the hospital. Ted was furious at his mother. He was just so argumentative, Wanda said, and I told him, look, we have to find out what's wrong. You have to go to the doctor. Ted shut down, refusing to talk to anyone. It was though a kind of veil or film would come down across his face, David Kaczynski remembered. There was a sense that he was profoundly closed off. The sense, the incident was one of the worst of what the family now remembers as spells of withdrawal that occurred throughout Ted's life, sometimes for no discernible reason. At times, he would stare silently at the ground, apparently lost in his own world. Ted did not speak to his parents again until the doctor said his health had improved and he could return to Harvard. <laughs> End quote. So he, he, from his childhood on, mm-hmm. or from his, from the time that he was a baby on, when he was met with severe, severely anxiety provoking situations, he would seemingly dissociate. Well, so really quick. Here's one more quote, too. This is from Every Last Ties, and it's about the same situation, about, the, about him being admitted to the hospital. And his mother, Wanda, would again, would, would tell David this story and would regale, would, yeah, regale him with, this, with what happened. David says, I can't really do justice to my mother's capacity for drama. Perhaps it was the stories and fairy tales she would read to me on that old couch, but Mom had a way of entering into the emotions of the scenes she described. By the time she finished, I was deeply moved. There'd be tears rolling down my cheeks, and I thought about the terrible suffering my, bu- my brother had endured as he was a baby. It was, an important, it was an important teaching moment, and my mother took advantage of it. David, your brother doesn't remember what happened to him. I'm sure he was much too young, but that hospital experience hurt him deeply, and the hurt never went away completely. Please remember, you must never abandon your brother because that's what he fears most. Yeah. So I think the interesting thing is, is it, is that really true, right? Is it, is 
what happened to him, um, something that is what inflicted this lifelong or what would be he, what set him on the path, right? Or was that just a natural reaction that every child would have? Right. And, and that and, his and, mother would absolutely like that his mother again, like who, who was incredibly empathetic and, you know, again, like it tried to try to install that empathy and that sort of almost um, that, that insight into other people's emotions into her sons. Was that almost more of the, more of the story than what actually happened? Because right. that's what I am going back and forth on when I read it. Well, the thing that I th- I think Ted himself says it in the in, a man- in the manifesto, right? He says, mm-hmm. "We make up these stories to justify our actions when they're not in- when there's no moral reason for the actions, right? We make mm-hmm. up these stories to give ourselves leniency when really what we're doing is we don't know why we're doing that, right? So I don't know. I- it's an interesting question." Because even she says he could not have remembered that type of anxiety. No. He was much too young. So it's sort of like, and I mean, every child, like my own child, has been hospitalized when she was very young. We were hospitalized probably at a certain point or had had severe trauma where we would have been separated from our from our parents. So is that is that enough? Is that what does something that that actually would lend credence to anything else that happens in the future. Yeah. And those are the things that I think are, that, you know, you that's especially interesting in this case because you have this narrator and his mother who is so, so convincing and mm-hmm. so prescriptively clear with this stuff that, you know, when I read it, I was like, oh, God, hell yeah, that's what did it. But then you're, you, but it's, you kind of have to question those things. It's the, yeah, it's the, you have to, you have to, you have to also take this as a mother trying to make sense of something that she has no control over. Right. This is, you know, especially later. Yes. She has from all accounts, the Kaczynski's were wonderful parents, you know, I mean, just, you can, you know, maybe a little standoffish, right. To the neighbors, but, but by all accounts, the kind of parents, any kid would be happy to have. You know, and David, the brother, turned into a wonderful man. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, just like a great guy. So a Buddhist, it, it's clearly not, you know, it's clearly the kind of person who can make the moral decision to say, I think my brother's killing people. I need to turn him in. You know, that's right. <laughs> like that in itself is a is a tremendous moral, morally courageous step to take. And so the fact that she could that this person could raise one kid to do that, to be able to do that. And then on the other hand, mm-hmm. to raise another son who goes out and murders people. Like it's, you know, it's the nature versus nurture argument in a, a you know, a perfect test case. Right. Yeah. Now. Yeah. So the mother, one area where Ted did seem to be able to kind of connect with people was in, it was in intellectual pursuits. And so the mother would read to him constantly. Mm-hmm. You know, and like starting out with pretty simple stuff like, you know, uh, not, you know, thrillers and whatever. But eventually, even by the time he was going to elementary school, reading him articles from, you know, Scientific American and 
you know, textbooks on math and things. Yeah. You know, so he, he advanced extremely quickly. Now what's, what's really fascinating, I think in the research is one of the series of books or the, the collected works that the family had in their home from mm-hmm. the time Kaczynski was a kid was the work of Joseph Conrad. Yeah. Now, for those that don't know, right? So mm-hmm. Joseph Conrad is a pretty, pretty famous, pretty famous author. Yeah. And so the works that he is probably best or the work he's probably best known for is Heart of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Now, he is particularly important to Polish immigrants because he was Polish. Right. His full name was Joseph Theodore Conrad Korzyniowski. Yeah, as badly as I'm probably butchering that Polish last name. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, the collected works of Conrad were in the family home. And in particular to this story, why that's important is it had a book called The Secret Agent, which is a favorite of Ted Kaczynski's or was a favorite of Ted Kaczynski's. This book, by anecdotal accounts, he had a copy of this book on his nightstand continuously as a kid. It's mm-hmm. one of the books that he had with him in the in the cabin. And it's one of the books that he he would cite this continuously as being important. Now, we're just I'm I'm gonna read a little quote here. All right, and this is from a uh, article called 1907 Conrad novel may have inspired Unibomb suspect from Sergei F. Kovaleski from 96 around the time that he was caught or around the time that the trial was starting to go on. Now, the book, The Secret Agent, uh, is was actually used by the FBI in profiling the bomber because mm-hmm. the the mm-hmm. links to the book were significant. OK, so Kaczynski mm-hmm. used. Uh, FP, you know, or FC rather freedom club as an initial kind of a, a calling card that he put on all of his bombs. And even Mm -hmm. when he sent letters out and things, he would sign it as F FC. FC. So, okay. Ready? This, here's the thing about this book. Okay. The secret agent is about an anarchist group who use the letters FP as their calling card, which means future proletariat. And they, they perform explosions specifically to disrupt technology, which they see as a, a boogeyman of modern society, kind of a golden calf of modern society that they think is ruining humanity. Mm-hmm. So quote in the secret agent, Conrad's character derides science and technology at every stage, science, pseudoscience and technology are perverted forms, fake idols rather than the real thing. Frederick R. Carl wrote in his introduction to the signet classic 1983 edition. The novel setting is London in the 1890s when England was beset by a wave of anarchist bombings, including an attempted attack on the Greenwich Observatory. That incident is at the novel center. The bomb carrier, Stevie, a troubled boy who blows himself up when he trips en route to the observatory, is viscerally protective of animals throughout the story, strikingly similar to the youthful Kaczynski's described by his family. The professor, who, this is a sidebar, is one of the characters and actually Kaczynski wrote to his brother and his, his mother saying if they wanted to understand his reclusive lights lifestyle, they should read this book and focus on the character of the professor. So, okay. End of sidebar. The professor is portrayed as a solitary figure on a rare walk through the city. He longs for his tiny room, which Conrad describes as lost in the wilderness of poor houses, the hermitage of the perfect anarchist. I have the grit to work alone, quite alone. Absolutely alone. Says the professor. 
who abandoned chemistry because he felt unfairly treated by the technical institute where he worked. Kaczynski abandoned an assistant mathematics professorship at the University of California at Berkeley, but for a different reason. He feared engineers would use what he taught them to destroy the environment, according to the family. The professor asserts, What's wanted is a clean sweep and a clear start for a new conception of life. To move that along, the professor depends on death. The professor's indignation found in itself a final cause that absolved him from the sin of turning to destruction as the agent of his ambition, Conrad wrote. The order to blow up the observatory comes from a character named Vladimir, an embassy head from an unnamed country who is disdainful of science. Any imbecile that has got an income believes in that, Vladimir says. He doesn't know why, but he believes it matters somehow. Vladimir says he would like to throw a bomb at mathematics. Since that is impossible, he picks the observatory. He describes murder as a byproduct of modern society. End quote. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the kind of stuff he was reading at night to, like, soothe himself to sleep. Right? And, like, and I'm, not, I'm not one of those people who thinks, obviously I'm not one of those people who thinks that, you know, media and, and video games and whatever can lead to someone becoming... A, right, you know, a murderer or, or things like that. Right, yeah. but the, the trench coat mafia. Yeah. But the similarities are striking. You know, he he almost. This is a a kid who had nowhere else to turn. Almost, you know, found in these characters, found in this story, a almost a a, a place to yeah a place to escape to yeah in his most frightened moments. And so it's almost natural or almost, you know, it's, I just, I don't think it has, you know, I think it's interesting that he, he used these motifs in planning his crimes and he probably thought he was being exceptionally clever when he did it. Like he was probably like, you know, oh, there's no one in the FBI is going to be smart enough to have read Conrad, you know? Well, yeah, he had a, he had a definite disdain for, for like modeling and, and being able to be, uh, detected like that right and it's interesting that they were able to pick out his favorite book immediately you know it's like the first thing they started looking at so no yeah no i hear you i think i think that that's i do think it's significant in that it's it was it was what he had and that what what he was reading and that it was what he identified to especially at that young age and again like the thing i think we need to like really drive home is how incredibly exceptionally smart this guy was like that he was in the 1950s later on that he i mean that he was accepted into harvard at 16 yeah so let's yeah let's let's he was he was completely beyond his peers or beyond his even his own family like his brother talks about how he couldn't like there wasn't a time that he, that it was not recognized how gifted, how gifted Ted was and like how different Ted was and not just different, like that he was, you know, that it almost overshadowed their ability to see a problem because his gift was so enormous 
that everything else just sort of paled, like his antisocial behavior. Well, that's only because he's so much smarter than everybody else. Right. And, you know, and, and yeah. this parental pride and this sort of, and again, like any parent, and he talks about this in the book, any parent, of course, with that, with that, that much potential is going to foster it and drive it and try and get it to, and try and get it to, to wherever it needs to be. So why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you want your child to go to Harvard in that respect? But you don't see some of the other, or you're almost overshadowing it with, with sort of these strange overdramatized false narratives of anxiety as a, as a baby for being separated because of hives or something. It's like, it's it's amazing because he came from such a devoted family to that they were so devoted to their kids and the education and sort of the well-being of their kids and that they've that this could come from it is to me it's like that's how could you see something like that well so i think what's really interesting is like you just said they continuously forgave or ignored the troubling behaviors yeah, because he was so smart. And I think in some ways, I, I don't think he's necessarily completely wrong in saying that the, with the mother, they loved their son, mm-hmm. but they also loved having a genius son. They yeah. loved having the genius. They loved having, you know, they wanted him. They wanted to push him as far as he could go. And for some people, that means you break. You know, it's for some people that it happens too quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So, you know, so right now in the story where Ted's around seven years old and his brother is born on October 3rd, mm-hmm. 1949. And that in itself is an extremely traumatic experience for him, supposedly, um, because he's again left alone in the maternity ward because he's not allowed upstairs to see his mother in the maternity ward. So they leave him uh, sobbing alone. Mm-hmm. And just go up, you know. So again, it's kind of a, you know, you can see how a parent would think, oh, that wasn't that bad. But the kid, you know, the kid will remember that stuff, right? I mean, that's why it's so scary to have a damn kid, you know? <laughs> well, so, yes, but you had brothers. You had, fa- like, you had siblings that that were, you know, older and younger. And, or maybe, you know, I, I don't know, you fall in there somewhere and it's like, I don't know. Like, again, it's what happened to Ted Kaczynski during the, the scope of his life, as it has been described, has not is not abnormal. It's not like uh, it's not like he was raised by a cult or it's not like, you, do you know what I mean? It's like, no, everything no, is like pretty standard. And to 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 have a sibling come into this, you know, to be born and have to. Sorry, again, I'm getting all flubbed up, but. Be there when you have a sibling born is a normal event in anyone's life. And to have him save it, that's or to be able to be like, that's the traumatic well, I think, moment. I think it's that I think it's that he was left in the waiting room for hours while his family went up to see the new baby. But every other kid in the 50s would have the same thing happen to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? I am with you. Sorry. I'm with you 100 percent. No, I'm with you. So, OK, so at. Again, he's having shutdowns. He's he's having yeah. these points of dissociation where he's just kind of going off into his own world when he's anxious, right? And so his parents <laughs> describe, 
you know, they brought him to a Boy Scouts meeting and he oh, just God, shut down and no. wouldn't talk to anybody. You know, uh, <laughs> he's probably really good at the chemistry and woodworking parts. Um, God love him. You know, Can you imagine? Can you imagine the scout? The scoutmaster in that they're, they're like, ridiculous. what are we supposed to do with him? So the parents, a friendship bracelet. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the parents, the parents think something might be wrong with him, right? They actually do think they, they have enough insight to say, well, this is kind of weird, right? He's 10. Yeah. The other baby's acting different. You know, he's smiling and stuff. Maybe something's weird. So they bring yeah. him to a friend who's a psychologist and he's 10 years old now. Mm-hmm. And he is tested at a IQ on the Stanford Binet uh, test range of 170. Now, mm. just for some context, right? The median in the United States, it's it's set to be 100. Mm-hmm. So two thirds of the population in the United States have a, has an IQ between 85 and 130. To get into Mensa, you have to have a 132. He had a 170. This makes him one of the smartest people to have ever lived. It's like off the charts. It's it's off the charts. The it's point like, top point one yeah. percent of the of of the population in IQ is a one forty five. He's a a whole you know he just wacky smart, right? He's like the highest you can test for. So again, yes. to say that he is to say that he is you know even remotely normal. Really yeah. is is a misnomer. He's not normal. Yeah. He's exceptional. Yeah. And so the the parent. So this is again from that Washington Post article. Um, a stranger in the family picture. So this is from his mother. But so okay. Quote: Ted Kaczynski was ten, an intellectually precocious fifth grader, when the family moved from Chicago to suburban Evergreen Park. A school psychologist gave Ted a Stanford Binet IQ test, and he scored a genius level of one seventy. Which sidebar? That's a misnomer. A genius level is above 130. But his mother took more comfort in the results of a personality test, which showed him to be well-adjusted. Quote, For a while, all my uneasiness about these residual effects from his early childhood were laid to rest because the psychologist said, oh, he's fine. In fact, she said he had a strong sense of security, which surprised me. She said he could be whatever he wanted to be. He was the cat's whiskers. End quote. (laughs) Which I guess is, uh, I guess is 1950s speak for he's not going to murder anybody later in life. Boy, Aww. was she wrong. Oh, the cat's whiskers. So that, that IQ She's test, Louise. that IQ test pushes him ahead two grades. So he's in fifth grade. Then he takes the IQ Only test. Two grades. Yeah, they that's... skip him. They skip him sixth and seventh grade. So he goes into high school, essentially two years younger than everyone else. Now, before this, he had some friends like he had kids in the neighborhood he would play with. He wasn't close to anybody per se. But at that age, like who is really close? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. You don't have much of a chance. Like, again, you're you are you're operate. You're you're almost in your own operating system at that point. Absolutely. You are this completely other entity that can't that maybe emotionally can't can't catch up with or can't function with what your intellect and what your, your intelligence is, is telling you. And I think that the whole idea of how empathetic, how, how, where did his empathy lie and how were you able, or how were people able to try and bring that out is, is questionable. Cause again, like you have a school psychologist, you know, being like, okay, well your kid just like blew away the genius level range 
by 40 points. But he's totally well-adjusted. It's like, of course he's not. But no. <laughs> as a as a parent, right, as a parent, all, and speaking as a parent, all you want to hear is that your kid's okay and adjusted well. And you know, everything's okay and they're not – they're not being affected by the world around them, you know, unduly in one direction, right? That's all you want is like, everything's fine. We don't have to worry about this stuff. And so as soon as somebody says something like that to you, as I'm sure like Wanda Kaczynski was, was just longing to hear that about her son. Like, oh, I'm sure she was gifted, thrilled. He's, he's, he's gifted and he's gifted to the point of like almost an alien intelligence, but he's yeah. fine. We can get, where's that scout master? Where's scout master Kevin? Let's get him signed up, right? Yeah, no, it's like, it's... there's, there's, and the, the amount of like suppression of every sort of instinct that tells you that that's wrong is just in, in full effect. And you're like, of course he's fine. He, he's going to grow up and he's going to be whatever he wants to be. But what he wants to be is, is in a totally different stratosphere than any other human. What he wants to You're, be is a domestic terrorist. <laughs> like, what he wants to be is pretty much God, right? Yeah, it's, is is a decision maker on an epic event that you can't even fathom in having a discussion with him. Well, and yeah. oh my God, yeah. And just like, a minute. I, I feel for her. I felt for the mom so much in this because I again one because maybe I am one. Well, not maybe I am one, but it's like. It's just sort of like you just want what's best. You want to make sure and you kind of are hoping like everything's going to be okay, which is sort of human nature, right? Like you you want your kids or whoever to, you know, your your friends or to just be able to do well and to and to to not have um to not have things affect them. Absolutely. In a way if it's going to hurt them. Yeah. And but that's not the way the world works. And so you're constantly at this odds and it's like but to have the the deck stacked in such a way that it's a Kaczynski-like intelligence and you just have very little, especially in the 1950s and 60s, to, to fight that. What are you going to do? Well, it's hard. It's hard to know, I guess. The, so the reasoning for why they thought moving him ahead grades would be mm -hmm. a good idea was because they – thought that the reason he wasn't making connections to other people mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. because he was so intellectually mature and, and not even, I mean, mature is the wrong word, right? Cause there's stories yeah. about when he's in high school, how he was obsessed with fart jokes, right? And the other, yeah. the other nerdy kids he hung out with were like, Oh, what are you 12? And he's like, I'm 11, you know? <laughs> and they were like, Oh, yes. he's stupid. He Ted. Child. Oh, Ted, you know, um, there's such a gap in that age range between right. like a, you know, a 15 year old and a, in a 13 year old, even that, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that he, that they thought that would work. And, and the, the, the other thing too, that's really interesting is he talks about this and his brother talks about this too. The people he was most comfortable with were the younger kids. Yeah. He liked hanging out with David and his friends, even though they were seven years younger because he he could he really could fit in better and that's something you see a lot with kids who you know have uh, mm -hmm. you know Ted Kaczynski's kind of you know we're not psychiatrists or psychologists or therapists or anything right so no but these, we we like to play them on the podcast so these diagnoses mean nothing when we make them right but so Kaczynski <laughs> later in life would be diagnosed <laughs> as schizophrenic mm -hmm. but a very a very rare and particular kind of schizophrenia 
that develops particularly into uh, paranoia and then violent, uh, violent acting out essentially at the people he's paranoid about. When actually reading reading his childhood, it's striking to me how much it sounds like he has a form of autism. Yes. You know, and yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, again, autism is not a it's not a superpower, nor is it you know, kind of the internet joke that people make it out to be right. But no, it's, it's an affliction like anything else. Right. But I think, I think there is something to be said about kind of the (laughs) obsessiveness he showed the, uh, the need for things to stay a certain way. His Mm -hmm. desire, his, his anxieties around change around uh, social interactions, right? Like, you know, there was some kind of, so, you know, some kind of, I don't know if it was necessarily, I don't see that the problem with the autism thing mm-hmm. is that I think that that gets applied a lot to people who are very, very smart because we, we don't have better names or ways of explaining the differences in the way people's brains work. Right. But, you know, but there was yeah. clearly something, there was clearly some kind of social maladjustment that had occurred in Ted that, that in today's society maybe would have been better handled. You know, I think it could have started they would have seen something and been earlier. able to identify it earlier. 100%. Whether they could have, I don't even want to say solve it because I don't think they're even now we're close to that, but I think being able to identify different ways that children react and, and how they are, I hate to say like on a bell curve, but like just in general, how, how do you identify kids that think differently or, or process differently? Right. is much more a, a part of everyday conversation now. Well, also, it's not, also, there's not as much stigma attached to it. Also, frankly, I mean, at this time, how many, I, you know, I couldn't really find this in kind of the stuff we hmm. were researching, but I wonder how many kids with an IQ of that had they even, you know, he might've been one of like five people ever to have tested with an IQ that high, that early. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're probably yeah. more... I doubt there were even tools available for the school psychologist to point to and say, Hey, if he's having trouble, you know, uh, if he's having trouble adjusting to normal social life, well, we should do this. Cause this is what the studies say to do. They're kind of, they're kind of going blind here. You know, IQ tests weren't developed that much earlier. Totally. So totally by the skin of their teeth yeah. on this man. So, I mean, for this time period. Oh, heck yeah. I mean, I, there's a small part of me that is surprised that he wasn't even institutionalized. Right, yes. that he was such an that he was such a, a misnomer that they just pulled him out and they had no idea what to do with him. Well, they they always the genius thing always if he was on the other side of the curve, right? You know, he yep. would have been. Yeah. Even if he was, even if he was slightly, uh, even if he was slightly less intelligent, right? Like a one twenty or one thirty or something, they probably would have still pulled him. Now, okay, so at this point, now he gets into high school. He is extremely young. Right. He's like, uh, I mean, he's just super duper young when he, when he starts out in high school. Right. He skipped two grades, sixth and seventh grade. He gets there where he where he finds himself able to make friends is in. And again, friends is a is a very strong word for what these people were to Ted. They were more yeah. they, they were acquaintances. Right. He really only ever had one person who you could kind of sort of point to as a friend which is uh, Russell Mosney, who mm-hmm. is one of the people that he meets in this high school. But so, all right. 
he becomes part of a group of friends known as the briefcase boys. Cause they all had Elvis pompadours and uh, you know, briefcases full of their science stuff and pocket protectors. Like imagine the standard 19, like, like revenge of the nerds, oh God. right? That's who he was hanging out with. Now, he was in the band. He played trombone. He was in the coin yes. club, the biology club, the German club, and the math club. So, you know, yes. ring in social life, right? Well, Doing he, was, great. he was gifted with music, too. He was almost as gifted musically as he was with math. He was, which is very yeah. interesting, right? So he had... Which is kind of crazy, yeah, yeah. Now, all of the friends that he did have were centered around science, were centered around academics. But in particular... They were centered around explosions. <laughs> he had uh, this group, the briefcase boys would uh, set up pranks using explosives. So they would make iodine bombs or, you know, little hand bombs. So there's actually one, um, one girl that went to school with Ted remembers he gave her a hand, a hand popper that he, you know, she pulled apart, but the inside, the explosive inside was stronger uh, than she than than they normally are, and it popped so loud that it scared her. You know, um, she she said she still remembers it to this day. It was terrifying. Um, he also helped a uh, a football player play a prank in the chemistry lab. Not really a prank. He was just showing him what he could do, and the resulting explosion shattered glass and actually injured a a student's a fellow student in another room's eardrums. Oh God! He also uh, he would make. So originally they were iodine bombs. They would then kind of get closer away towards, say, fertilizer bombs and things that are a little bit more dangerous. Yeah. To the point to the point where the explosives he was making, you know, could be heard throughout the neighborhood. Right. So these guys would go out, they'd build rockets, they'd build explosives, whatever. And they would just they would blow up trash cans. Right. And this is normal. I would again, I would put this in the you know, in the range of the normal oh. teenage boy, teenage kid type of stuff. Like you want to blow something up. You want to set fire to something. This is not like, I think it, it's just his ability to be able to do this and refine this and think about this is stratosphere different than anyone else around him. Absolutely. And so at this point now, his skills at science and mathematics. So there's a, there's a, an anecdote in, and this was even earlier. This was like, you know, around that fifth grade period. But there's an anecdote that his family went on vacation. And so he gave a neighbor, uh, the mother of a neighbor, a book to watch for him so that it wouldn't get lost. And it was called Romping <laughs> Through Mathematics from Algebra to Calculus. It was, it was supposedly his favorite book, right? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of kid that, that Ted was. He was extremely smart. But at the same time, he he would use his and this is kind of a history of this uh, pattern or a pattern of this kind of activity. He would use his his intelligence and his, you know, his his viewed intellectual superiority as a weapon against other people. So how could he not? Right. Of course. Right. You're a snotty kid. You're going to like you're going to use whatever you have in your arsenal. His arsenal is just that much more. Well, and you've and you've been told that you are, you know, you're the next. uh, I mean, Einstein wasn't even really a thing then. (laughs) You know, I mean, he's being. I mean, I guess actually this was the the time for Einstein. But, you know, he's being told he's going to be the next 
you know, he's he's an exceptional person. He's one out mm-hmm. of a billion people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a story about, you know, a, a neighborhood girl, you know, saw a grasshopper and said, look, a a, a, a grasshopper or something, mm-hmm. right? She had a, you know, a speech impediment or something. And Ted just berated the little girl for like 10 minutes, you know, oh, you idiot. It's a grasshopper, you know, and this, oh, this is this, this, and whatever. And just, you know, tearing into her, right? Mm-hmm. Another period, uh, he was at a family gathering with an aunt who it's, it's really interesting. The aunt is, the aunt does not want to be named in any of these articles, but it's clearly the aunt that Ted like did not like because mm-hmm. all of the stories from her are like, he was a little jerk, <laughs> you know? So, uh, she says that he was, it was like Christmas or something. And the dad said, well, Ted, why don't you speak to your aunt? You know, did anything interesting going on in your life? And he said, what's the point? She won't understand me anyways. And then kind of went off in a huff back to his, his attic where he hung out. Right. You know, where yeah. they so, his room. Yeah. And so, and you know, and so for most teenagers, that's like, oh, whatever. Yeah. I don't understand you. Your, your Marilyn Manson makeup and you know, <laughs> your spiked, your spiked uh, chains and whatever. And your right? rock music. Yeah. Yes. You know, but for Ted, it was like, Li- you know, literally, literally there were probably, you know, yeah. there was maybe one or two people in his, in Chicago at that time period who could understand him really, you know? So it's, it's just, it's so interesting The kind of the, it's so interesting that some of this was like kind of true, you know, he kind of, kind of would have had trouble being understood in things, but anyways. Well, yeah. And I mean, and the fact that biologically he's a teenage kid, he's a boy, like he's not, there's no maturity level. There's no kind of, you know, he, he's, he's a mess. He's just a, a mess to begin with. And he's, again, he's got a supernatural level of intelligence to him. I, and in a, in a, in a time that really couldn't recognize any of this as being as what the problems or what could come out of this no, thing. No. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of like, Oh my God, I was reading it and it's just, it did seem like his brother, like in, in the, in the story, his brother idealized him and loved him and was just so, but again, was just so much his opposite was so empathetic and could, and could charm and smile and just, be beloved by anybody, which again, I think would be sort of a hard thing to have Ted understand. Like how, how is it that everyone around me sort of has this, this vocabulary and this lexicon that they can, they can whip out and use and fit in. And I can't, I don't have this. I can't even, I can't even start this. I don't even know how this works. Right. I'm smart enough to understand, you know, the difference, but I can't, I can't do it. Why can't right, I do like, this? Yeah, I can yeah. figure out a math problem. I can figure out whatever, but I can't, I, I physically can't, you know, can't relate to my I can't be mother, charming. To my I father. can't, yeah, I can't, yeah. I can't talk to people. I can't have normal relationships. And I think his brother really saw that. And, and again, like, it's interesting hearing him, like, again, be in school after his brother, Ted, and, and he was very intelligent, very, very smart. But then when he went to apply at the normal time for, for Harvard, they were like, yeah, no, well, <laughs> he didn't get in. <laughs> what's, what's interesting. Yeah. It's, that is actually really funny. And it's like, and he was like, we already messed up one Kaczynski brother. <laughs> but he was like, they were like, yeah, no, you're test score. You're not smart. You're not, you're not Harvard material. And it's like to be in that family and to have those polar opposites 
nobody's coming out of that well-rounded. Just like no. almost, I want to say like any family, right? Like any family dynamic, you're going to have that. But this is just so charged. But it created, it created his brother. His brother became a Buddhist, right? And his his brother's the the Unabomber. It's insane. What, and what's, insane. It's just amazing. What's interesting is the so the the brother now throughout this time again. You got to remember. So <laughs> David is seven years younger than Ted, and David is kind of you know again he's very smart. He's still very very bright. Yeah. In fact, I think David tested. I think David still tested at genius levels for intelligence. Yeah. Uh, but again, like Marie said, was was much more empathetic. Was much easier to get along with. And just had had a lot of friends, had a normal social life, right? And mm-hmm. the other thing with David, though, is that him and Ted had a very special kind of relationship where David, so initially we said that, you know, Ted seemed to be very resentful of his brother being born even, right? He felt like he was taking mm-hmm. all his attention, whatever. But the mother eventually, you know, in in kind of bringing the baby home and showing him to Ted and trying to get really trying to get Ted interested and involved in the baby kind of in, I think in a way that they tell most parents to do, right. I mean, it seems like a very healthy <laughs> way to do this. Um, Ted came to love, you know, came to love his little brother, right. As much as he could love anybody. Mm-hmm. And so there are very, you know, very moving stories somewhat of David recalling, you know, when he was a toddler, he couldn't open up uh, the door, right. Like a fence door or something. And so Ted actually like rigged up a little pulley system for him That would let him pull open the door, right? Or, you know. Just touching. Right. You know, stuff like that. Or, you know, stories about David, you know, Ted letting him into his room and, you know, uh, reading him a book or, you know, like stuff like that. It it brings a secondary side to this kind of story where, you know, it's interesting that they had this relationship. And Ted would even open up to David later on in life about his, you know, his social, his anxiety about other people and how he couldn't Mm -hmm. even feel, you know, he just didn't feel comfortable generally around people, but that's for, that's for the next episode of the second and third episodes here. Um, so, okay. He's pulling these pranks. He's making explosives. He's, you know, happy, you know, blowing up the neighborhood, having a great time. He is because it's going so well, Marie, they decide let's skip him ahead again. Another year, (laughs) right? Again, (sighs) again, with the thought process being, He's outpacing these other kids. He's not having a great time in school. He hates it here. Let's mm-hmm. get him out, you know, get him out there where he can be among his intellectual equals. Mm. And so at 16, he is sent off to Harvard. Yes. And so this is a quote. Now, if if you watch that Netflix kind of series on the Unabomber, mm-hmm. one thing they bring up is they kind of romanticize this idea of he had this friend they were good friends. They went out to the woods. They would play whatever. And then the friend got a girlfriend and Ted felt betrayed and then set a bomb off in it. You know, it burned the kid's face and the girl's face and whatever. But he was like, I did it, you know, whatever. And that was what led to his bombings. There's no evidence that I can find that he actually had a good close friend as a kid. The closest thing to a close yeah. friend he seemed to have was this guy, like I said, Rose, uh, Russell Mosney. Mm-hmm who was a member of the the math club was one of the briefcase boys, whatever. And the closest their friendship got was Russell would occasionally go over to Ted's house and go to his room and talk about math and science together. And 
you know, he would talk to him and stuff, but it's not, mm-hmm. it's not anything like kind of the, the romping friendship, you know, we see there and there's, there's really no, although Ted would later say that one of his biggest kind of regrets was never being able to understand and kind of get along with female uh, mm-hmm. companions, mm-hmm. you know, romantically or not. There just is no evidence for this idea of kind of betrayal yeah. like that, right? He 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 talks. I didn't about see the, any of it. I couldn't no, find that anecdote the, anywhere else. Yeah, the letter the letter to his brother when the brother got married is true. That actually was uh, that mm-hmm. actually was part of the letters that he sent to him. But David, as far as I was able to tell, Marie, maybe in the book he had a different take on this. But as far as I can tell, David was just kind of taken aback, like never even met my wife, dude. Like. <laughs> How can no, you say yeah. she's betraying you? <laughs> you yeah, know? I mean, he had a, I think he was a misogamist. I mean, that he definitely didn't, didn't, he couldn't identify and he couldn't talk to people. He especially couldn't identify and talk to women. Um, But I couldn't find anything that sort of said that there was sort of any kind of rivalry or, but he started doing this. He, he took venge, you know, like a personal vendetta or vengeful at a young age the one thing I did think was interesting was later on um, him talking about how he would have wanted to go. He didn't want to go to Harvard. He was mad that his parents pushed him into Harvard. He wanted to go to Oberlin for music, mm. which to me, it's like, again, it's like this interesting sort of alternative universe idea of like, what what would have happened if that was the case? Like, would he have... Would that have done anything? Would that have given him any sort of an outlet? Would music have had been sort of a language that he could have actually? And of course, I don't think so. I think again, that's highly romanticizing a uh, something that's something that doesn't really exist. But I, I think that it's interesting that he drew this distinction between sort of like being pushed into this hard science, and there was this other option that would have um, that that would have been something more human, right? I and think that he, they, that he never even got the chance to have that choice. Yeah. I think he made a lot of, okay. I'm kind of of two minds about this, right? Because I mm-hmm. think he, I think he made a lot of excuses for yes. his actions, for his, uh, for his feelings of resentment and anger towards other people for, you know, for all of that stuff. Right. I think that he, mm-hmm made a tremendous amount of excuses for that to try to get himself out of uh, responsibility for it. Right. On the other hand, though, I do think that there is a, I wonder how much of the parents pushing him so hard. There's Mm -hmm. so, there's not a lot of evidence or there's, there's not a lot of kind of, you know, specific, uh, besides kind of, you know, secondary kind of, inf- you know, inferences that the parents pushed him very hard. Mm-hmm. There isn't a lot of specific, like, you know, the mother said you had to study, you know, all day, every day, or, you know, the father, you know, whatever would, uh, mm-hmm. you know, would or psychologically mm-hmm. torture him until he, until he, you know, learned a section of textbook or something, right? Like there's, there's nothing like that in this kind of background. no. But I check the opposite. But I do think having the. I do think having the label of genius put on you Mm -hmm. and having the the mother laud over his academic achievements 
over you're going to be a great scientist, you're going to be a wonderful, you know, you're going to be an engineer, you're going to do something, you know, mm-hmm. to really help people, mm-hmm. right? This idea of, and I think, you know, again, kind of, I don't know, you know, my father's kind of, my father was not exactly the uh, stereotypical immigrant parent, neither was my mother, right? But I think mm-hmm. that there is something to be said about this idea of immigrant parents wanting their kids to, I think it's true of all parents, right? But the mm-hmm. idea of the idea of, well, you can't yeah, no, like you're not going to run a bakery. Like that's what we had to do to get us to this country. Right. You know you're what I mean? Going like, to be like you're going to be a remarkable doctor. achievement. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. To help. You're, yeah. You know, it's no, you're not going to be a musician. What are you talking about? You know, you play music yeah. until you get into Harvard and then you put that violin down and never touch it again. Your, your yeah. hands are for surgery, you know? Yeah. So I, I think there's something to be said for that idea it's that he's surgeon. Yes. Good. So it's a, it's a word in English. Um, I think that there's something to be said for that. And so I think that his, oh. you know, using his intellect as a weapon, I think it, it, he clearly got some satisfaction from thinking he was better than other people in his yes. kind of, in his, in his, you know, and he, he was smarter than other people. I don't know if that makes you better. Right. No, I think, like I said, I think his operating system was just at a much different, in a much different place than any other person's, right? So, and I think the, the, how he took in stimulus and feedback from his family would just be that much different than how we process, how quote unquote normal everyday people process that yeah. stuff. It it would be an entirely different you know, an entirely different voice going on in your head about what's, what's expected of you and what you're going to be doing with your life. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's, but what's so hard is it's like, it's so hard to know or to be able to, I don't want to say prove, but to be able to substantiate any of that. Because if you look at just the general framework around him and his, his, you know, his childhood and his coming in, becoming an adult or not even an adult, but a, a young man going into Harvard, it's like, that's all just normal family or pretty normal, if not supporting family, no strange, again, not like typical, you don't see typical um, serial killer behavior, right? Like cruelty or, or, um, you know, cruelty to animals or yes, he was emotionally distant, but not these other things that would sort of, you know, that you can actually pin back on. Oh, well, yeah, here's your, you know, here's your stereotypical profile of a, of a See, serial killer that's, and that fits but, it. But that's what's funny though, Marie, right? Hmm. Although hmm. he doesn't necessarily fit the, the profile of a serial killer, mm-hmm. he is actually strikingly in line. Again, you know my feelings on mm-hmm. profiles, but strikingly yes. in line with the profile of a serial bomber. Yes. Now, yes. We're going to get into that next episode a little bit more. I'm just saying in his childhood. Yes, absolutely. His childhood to me was not any more um, remarkable or not remarkable than than any other one. It wasn't horrible. Right? He just had kind of a normal childhood, right? Now, a little lonely, a little lonely, but what nerd isn't lonely? All right. And so this is kind of his, so he's 16 and he's going off to college. He's going to Harvard. Right. And this is this is a quote from again Russell Mosney, that uh, that friend of Ted's or you know that closer acquaintance mm-hmm. than others. Quote: They packed him up and sent him to Harvard before he was ready. 
He didn't even have a driver's license. End quote. Oh, God. God. So. Oh, my God. That is it. That is it for this episode on the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski. We will be back next week with an episode focusing on Ted's time at Harvard University. His uh, his part in MK Ultra mind control experiments, essentially, uh, and psychological torture. What? At the hands oh of a God. unethical and frankly someone who should be looked at with disdain, a psychologist. And, Agreed. Um, and then his his time at Berkeley and his beginnings of his time in the cabin. So uh, that's it for this episode. Mm. Listeners, we are so excited to be back this season. Thank you so much for being patient. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I am, as always, your host, Chris Cogswell, with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Oh, you guys, it's so good to be back. We missed you very much. So good to be back, back with you. This is, oh, as always, a Damn It Chippy Productions. And this episode what, and what? all information contained what, what? therein, unless mm-hmm. attributed otherwise, is uh, copyright the Mad Scientist podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at MadScientistPod or at TeamGiantSquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Because we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. Woo-hoo. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.